Good morning. Good morning. 
do a couple of announcements here. Uh, we all know the first four by heart. <laughs> Evening service for tonight is yeah. canceled. Yeah. Uh, we will resume service on Sunday, July 10th. Communion service will be next week on July 3rd, and of course there'll be no evening service there. And there is no dinner on that day either. <coughs> I'm gonna start off our service this morning a little differently. Um, if you would take your brown hymnal and go to Psalm 2, and that's page 691 in the hymnal. And this is not a responsive reading, it is a read together. I will start and you folks go ahead and keep up. <coughs> when you come to it, you would stand. That's correct. I'm going to begin it, and then we're all going to read together. <coughs> Psalm 691, Psalm 2. <coughs> Everybody there? Okay. Why do the nations conspire? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those Amen. Uh, George, would you lead us in opening prayer? Oh, I'm sorry, Terry? Yeah. Uh, Ken Lewis has had a mild heart attack, I understand. That's not the way it read, but I don't know. Okay. 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 Then we need to keep Ken in our fervent prayers. And George, maybe you would add that in with your prayer. Please. Father, indeed, as we come before you today, we are saddened by the fact that uh, we have another elderly uh, member who is struggling with his health. And we ask that God that your hand be upon him, that you would get the doctors done. But more than that, we ask that you 
Amen. Our opening hymn for this morning is taken from the hymnal, hymn number 72. Anybody remember the first rule when I'm leading the song? We'll add that in. Um, exactly, exactly. Sing it with joy and glad hearts. Okay, number 72, we will glorify. kind of a good thing. We've accomplished our goal this morning. Uh, take your seats, please. We're not going to have a congressional hymn, but we're going to do what we did last week, uh, testimonies, uh, uh, events of the day that uh, you'd like to expand on or bring to our attention. So, Terry? Yes, it does. Nice to be but we haven't heard the last of her today. So, um, so what? What? Anything of any importance happened this week that anybody can uh, expound on or bring? Thank you. 
We shouldn't be so naive to believe that all abortions are going to end immediately. We understand that people can still get abortions all over the country, and with the exception of a few states that have banned them outright, um, there's still going to be plenty available to add to the already 60 plus million babies that were destroyed in 73. And they will pay for the service as well. I guess the only positive of that is it's not state funding or government funding. They're going to be on the hook to pay for it themselves. So the other uh, Supreme Court action of note was the uh, uh, I forget the name, but it was uh, someone sued. Uh, federal government in New York State and a couple of others about the gun rights and uh, concealed carry law. And that has been stripped down and sent back to the states as well. Doesn't mean, again, that immediately people are going to be able to put their pistols in their pocket and drive to New York. Because in New York, they put caveats on these laws. If you uh, are from another state and you don't have a California driver's license, a New York driver's license, you can't get a gun permit for New York. There is no reciprocity. I would have hoped that the, the judges would have gone a little bit further and been more clear on that, but it is a start, and uh, I can see just a glimmer of hope that uh, we are beginning to get our rights and freedoms back. So, any other comments or even prayer requests? Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the scripture reading. Taking from Matthew 22. come to it, please stand. It'll be Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner my oxen and padded cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this holy and inspired reading. May it pierce our hearts, draw the lost to you, and reassure the hearts of your children. In the name of Christ, amen. <coughs> And we have another hymn, 306 in the hymnal. <clears throat> Y'all are ahead of me, you're already standing. <clears throat> Jesus saves, Jesus saves, the 
Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Shout salvation full and free. Highest hills and deepest caves. This our song of victory. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Please be seated. Our text today is Matthew 22. <clears throat> today I'm beginning a new series on the gospel that Jesus preached. There are a lot of voices out there. It's on TV, radio, everywhere. Self-made preachers are during, declaring all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. But if you don't know what Jesus taught, you will imbibe that and in many cases not be the better for it because What's being said, allegedly from Jesus, just is not true, or the interpretation is wrong. So this new series beginning today is going to deal with the gospel from the standpoint of Jesus' own preaching. Primarily dealing with his kingdom parables that usually start out like this. The kingdom of heaven is light. And that's how you know it's a parable. But don't dismiss parables because Jesus used these the stories in order to convey the gospel truths, which in many cases, if not all, is heavy-duty stuff. So how are you going to take farmers and sheep herders and uh, agriculturalists merchants, people like that who have had no theological education whatsoever how are you going to teach them the truths of the gospel if you come at them with a, a lot of heavy duty theology, it's going to go right over their head, they're not going to get it so Jesus was very wise in I know what I'll do. I'll tell them stories that will contain the gospel truths. And everyone likes a story. And they'll get the truth of the message by a medium that they're used to hearing. And wow, what wisdom that was in declaring the truth of the gospel. Instead of making it hard for people to understand, Jesus made it, put it right down in their lap where they could get at it. 
And we're going to find in Jesus' word confirmation what we find in the writings of the apostles. It's not like this is new. And we should expect this. After all, the apostles wrote under inspiration of the Spirit of Christ. And so they have to agree with Christ. Some of us walk around with, um, I call them the red letter editions of the Bible, in which the words of Jesus are printed in red. And I think it's helpful to know the direct teaching of Jesus. But it can be harmful, too, if we get the notion that the words of Jesus said directly are more authoritative for our lives than the words of his apostles. The apostles' writings are expansions. They are explanations of the meaning of Jesus' words. We might call the words of the apostles an inspired interpretation of the teachings of Christ. And since it's inspired, it's the correct interpretation. Very helpful. We cannot discount this. Paul put it this way. He says, our faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 20 and 21. So, this new series is designed in no way to pit Christ and his teaching against the teachings of the apostles, but rather to hear the gospel as originally preached by Christ and to see where the apostles got their understanding of the gospel which they preached. The root of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the temple of God's people is Jesus. Now the kingdom parables deal with Jesus explaining how people can enter what I'm calling the spiritual side of the kingdom which he establishes. And in saying the spiritual side is because the kingdom of God is different from the church of God. How so? Well, the kingdom of God has to do with the rule and reign of Christ over the entire world of mankind. The world doesn't accept this, but we do. It includes the wicked as well as the righteous. Uh, we're, we're not going to say that Satan rules the wicked, not God. He does do his wicked things but he is under the control of Almighty God. So his rule extends to pagans as well as to believers in Jesus. The church, on the other hand, deals with the people of God only, those who are the believing element in the kingdom of God. So we could say it this way, the kingdom of God is not in the church, but the church is found in the kingdom of God. 
And in the kingdom parables, this explains why there's an admixture of wicked with the righteous, the immoral with the moral, the bad with the good. God is showing the tension which exists in his kingdom until the coming age of restoration and renewal. But this tension is not shown as an end in itself. The tension depicts the real world in which we live and it demonstrates the struggle people have to get from the skeptical side of the kingdom of God to the believing side, from the pagan heart to the disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that because there are wicked people in the kingdom of God now, that that will be the scenario for all of eternity. God is dealing now with the tares mixed among the wheat. But harvest day is coming in which the weeds will be gathered, pulled up, piled up to be burned, and the wheat will be put into God's barn. Jesus' kingdom parables, then, are designed to deal with the real world in which we live. The world of imposters, the world of those that are religious but lost, the world that contains atheists and skeptics and rebels, the fearful, the insecure, the ignorant, you name it. But its design is to convince people to cross the line from the kingdom of darkness, over which he also rules, by the way, into the kingdom of his glorious light, to move from the doom side of humanity to the church of the saints of God, from the lost to the saved. That's what the gospel is about. Now in Matthew 22, then, we have one of these parables. It's the parable of the wedding banquet. I think all of us like weddings. And if we had to choose between a wedding and a funeral, I know for my sake, I would always choose a wedding. Always. Weddings are generally viewed as festive occasions filled with laughter and lighthearted conversation, good food, good beverages, warm fellowship of friends and loved ones as they share in the joy of two people in love, establishing a covenant of mutual fidelity and honor towards, towards life together. Now, people cry at weddings, but they're generally tears of joy. They laugh, they smile, they get their picture taken for posterity, but they want to capture the happy moments and record them for future reflection. But, the story Jesus tells in our text is a different kind of wedding. It was one which started out with great anticipation of joy, but it ended in sorrow. It began with a free offer of grace and kindness, and it ended in judgment. It began with many invited, verse 14 says, Many invited. 
but it ended with few being chosen to enter into the actual joy of the wedding banquet. Jesus tells the account of a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Verse 1. Now, immediately we know that this is going to be no ordinary wedding. Kings can do what commoners cannot. They have resources available to them which are beyond the means of the average citizen. I don't know if any of you ever watched the weddings of Queen Elizabeth. That was just rebroadcast here not too long ago. I have. And absolutely astounding. The opulence that went into that. Gold-plated chariot coaches drawn by Clyde Bud. Um, what do they call those? Yeah, horses with the big white fluffy feet at the bottom, all groomed. All their their tails were braided with uh, beautiful gold ribbons and stuff. Just absolutely gorgeous. Because lavish can go along with kings and queens. Look at verse 4. My oxen, my fattened cattle, have they been butchered? Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. I mean, even the word banquet conveys opulence, doesn't it? Banquet. Mm. This is not hot dogs and baked beans. No, this is steak and lobster, filet mignon, jumbo shrimp, crab pate, caviar, imported wines, gourmet coffees, and cherry jubilee for dessert. This is opulence. Here is a meal fit for kings, for it is a king who has spared no expense for his guests. Why? Because this is no ordinary wedding. That's why. It's the wedding day of his very own son. Heir apparent to the throne, joint sovereign of the kingdom. This is the son of his great love, his only begotten son, whose bride now at long last has been chosen, whose marriage day has finally arrived. And one would think that whatever interests the king would interest his subjects. That the king's joy would become the people's joy. I mean, think about it. We enter into the joy of the people whose weddings we attend because we love these people. We want their joy to be complete by our presence, by our rejoicing. So this king anticipated a similar response from the people of his kingdom. A joyous occasion is heightened by others who are present and can share in the joy. Ah, but a joyous occasion is also soured if there are no others to appreciate it along with the parties involved. And just think about that a minute. You're throwing a wedding 
for your son and his new bride and nobody shows up. What an insult that would be to you as mom and dad planning that. Wait, wait, didn't they get the invitation? You'll start, people will start thinking. Did I put the wrong day on the invitation? No, the king of our story had done all that was necessary to secure the joy of his son in his marriage and all that was necessary to provide for the happiness of the wedding guests as they walked through the doors of the banquet hall. The invitations had been sent out. Even the personal servants of the kings went to the invited guests to tell them, all is ready. But when the servants showed up in their horse-drawn carriages to escort the guests to the party, the invited guests refused to come. What? What? Really? Did I hear that right? So another delegation of servants was sent out to the same guests, and they rehearsed some of the details of planning which had occurred for this event. Uh, you, you, you folks just don't understand. I mean, the wedding is today, as your invitation said. Uh, 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 the dinner is prepared. The banquet hall has been decorated with precious stones of diamonds and rubies and emeralds and fresh-cut flowers bedeck every table. Succulent cuisine has been meticulously cooked. Dinnerware of silver and gold is at every place setting. All is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. What was the response? Verse 8. First, they, the guests, paid no attention. You know, it's a great insult to ignore the invitation of a king. The servants, after all, were only the carriers of the king's message. They had no authority in themselves to invite anyone to the king's banquet. And so when these people insulted the messengers, they insulted the king of the message. And the insult was this. They paid no attention. Paid no attention. They treated the king's message worse than they would have treated a word from one of their own fellow subjects. And thus they demonstrated their contempt for the king and his son. Secondly, they went off to their own pursuits. Luke tells us in his account, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, well, you know, I bought a field and I, I, I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, 
you know, I just got married. So I, 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 I cannot come. Luke 14, verse 18 and following. Now, none of these things were all that pressing. Think about it. The field would be there to see on another day. He was already purchased it. The yoke of oxen would likely live long enough <laughs> to plow on the morrow. And the newly married man should have empathized with the joy of the king's son on this his wedding day. Luke tells us that these things were nothing more than people making excuses. I'm glad it's worded that way in the scripture. These are just excuses. Two of the three actually said, please excuse me. Sounds so polite. But rebellion to the request of a king is never polite, no matter how pleasant the words. The third thing some of the involved guests did, it says in verse 6, they seized the king's servants and mistreated them and killed them. Ooh, oh, oh my. Oh my. Things have gone from bad to worse. So here we begin to catch a small glimpse of the real nature of the problem. These people who were invited to the marriage banquet of the king's son had no love for the king or his son. Their true hatred surfaces as they mistreat the king's servants and even kill them. What ingrates. What ingrates. How detestable they are and devoid of any commendable qualities. In verse 7, Jesus calls them murderers. And so they are. Had they not cared to come to the banquet... They could have made excuses like the others. They could have walked away. But these people were of a more rebellious stripe. They had an axe to grind, a point to make, a protest to register. We are not told what their hatred for the king and the son was, but whatever it was, it ran deeply. From all we can see in the text, this king and his son we're not the kind of royal family that snubs the common folk. The guest list consisted of people from all walks of life. And the gracious provisions of the banquet were made without discrimination. So it would seem that the kindness of the king, the kindness of his son, notwithstanding, these people hated them still, and there was no reason for such malice. And as the result of the murderous conduct of these unrepentant subjects, the king sent his armies to execute the murderers of his messengers and to burn their city, verse 7. In other words, he meted out judgment because of their response. 
Secondly, the king opened the invitation of his son's wedding to anyone his servants could find. And the servants brought in, we're told, verse 10, both good and bad. Y'all come. The kingdom of God is populated by both good and bad. The kingdom of God. And Luke tells us that the poor, the crippled, I'm reading scripture, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame were invited to fill the slot of those who had rejected the king's original invitation. Isn't that amazing? The servants were told, go out there, bring in both the good and the bad. And even those that have no money, even those that are crippled in feet, they're blind, they're lame, bring them too. If you have to carry them, bring them. And we are told the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 10. You know, filling the wedding hall was important to the king. Luke's account, chapter 14, verse 23, gives us his own words. Jesus' words. Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I mean, there was too much provision for just a handful of people. Many should, many could, enjoy the gracious spread of their host. This is not a party for a few close, intimate friends. This was a party for the entire neighborhood, more for the entire realm over which the king ruled. The king thought big, he prepared big, and he expected big in terms of the response to his invitation. I mean, he had but one son. And his wedding day was to be celebrated with as many people present as possible. And the king's large preparations demonstrated that he had planned for a large crowd. That was the parable Jesus told. Now what is Jesus' point to this parable? Well, as you probably guessed, the great king of this parable is God himself. And his kingdom is the entire world over which he rules. Jesus Christ is his son. And the wedding banquet is the celebration of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Spoken of in Revelation 19, verse 6 and following. You can read it in detail there. But it says that there was a great multitude shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright, clean, given her to wear. Then the angel said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see Jesus saying here 
just to be invited is an honor, a blessing. But the people in the story didn't consider themselves blessed at all. They had no regard for the honor which God was bestowing upon them. They were being invited to come into the inner workings of God's kingdom, to meet his son, to become a part of his gracious provisions. All that their soul needed was spread on the table. Everything was ready, everything necessary for these people to enter into the joy of God's salvation. God provided. But they paid no attention. No attention. And you know people do the same today. The messengers of God come with the free and gracious offer of the gospel. Isaiah is a good example who says, Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fear. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 5. Yet, no matter how gracious the offer, no matter how free the offer, the people pay no attention. There is no appetite for what God offers. Indeed, the scripture says, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. If any of you have ever made the open house circuit of graduating seniors, you will undoubtedly observe a large number of teenagers at these gatherings. Why? Free food, <laughs> among other things. Teenagers like to eat, and teenagers have no money. So the open houses provide a rich opportunity to fill up at the expense of somebody else. They know a good thing when they see it. And they take advantage of the free offer. But those who glut themselves on the philosophy of the world and indulge their sin have their appetite satisfied with sinful things. So the things of God are not appealing. The banquet table of God spread with forgiveness of sins, life anew in a proper relationship with God himself, the love of the Savior, they have no appeal. Worse, these things are looked upon as foolish. The Greek here is moros, from which we get moron means a disgrace, something to be held up 
in ridicule. No one wants to be anti-God and insulting to his son, so they beg off with weak excuses and polite expressions. The excuses the people of the story used in Jesus' account for not responding to God's invitation are the same as people use today. Look at the text. The field. Gotta go check out my field. My homestead is important to me. The oxen. My work or my livelihood is important to me. More important than God and his salvation. My spouse. I just have gotten married. Family is more important than Christ. On one occasion, I remember that someone invited to follow Jesus responded by saying, here it is. Well, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Matthew 8, verse 21. Seems like a reasonable request. We're told to honor our parents. When one dies, we would think, I just must be at the funeral. I wouldn't think of missing it. But Jesus said to this man, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Verse 22. In other words, he was telling this guy, there are things which the spiritually dead can do just as well as the spiritually alive. One thing is that they can bury the deceased. But spiritually dead people cannot follow after Christ. They cannot do his bidding and please his father. In life, we have to choose the best. But are we? What excuse are you presenting to God for your non-involvement with him and his son? What polite, oh, Please excuse me. Are you using to exempt yourself from the clear call of God to come to the wedding supper of the Son and to feast on the spiritual food that God has for you there? Well, I got to work on my house. Oh, yeah, I know. The homestead is so important. Laying up treasures on earth, neglecting your soul. That's a good priority. Well, I'm too busy at my job. Yeah, well, God knew about that. So he said, labor, six days. Go ahead and do that. But the seventh is set aside for you to come into God's banquet hall and feast on the food the king's servants spread before you. You mean six days for you to work? Isn't enough? Well, my family's not Christian. My spouse, my children, they don't care to be with God's people. They don't want to learn God's word. 
Are you then going to join your family in their rebellion? You know, love of family must never supersede love for God. Say, so, well, that sounds, you know, that sounds terrible. Let me give it to you from the words of Christ, and you will know it's not me. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or a mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, verse 37 and following. Brethren, there is sacrifice in following Christ. Remember the cross? Remember Paul saying, I am crucified with Christ. If a family member will not come to the banquet table, you must. And it is in the coming that you will find the answers to your spiritual needs and the resources to help your skeptical family. And if you don't come, you will be like these in the story who did not deserve to come, verse 8. And you with your family will perish when God sends out his armies to judge the ingrates. And what good is that? So I say come to Christ today and the banquet hall may not include you on the guest list tomorrow. Okay, okay, okay. I'll ask Jesus to save me and if it'll make you feel better and get you to think well of me. Hey, don't do me any favors. And while you're at it, don't go through the motions of God's benefit either because he is wise to imposters. He is. Look at verses 11. <clears throat> And following. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. That's a hard read, isn't it? Many invited, few chosen. We read in Revelation 19 that those invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb were given fine linen, bright and clean to wear, fine 
linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Every guest entering the banquet hall at the invitation of God is given the proper garment to wear. Thus the poor and the rich alike, those affluent, those who have meager means, they all look alike. They all stand on equal ground as friends of the groom. Revelation 7.14 tells us the guests got their garments white. Let me read it for you. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Whoa. Therefore they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits in the throne will spread his tent over them. Think of a canopy. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. No, they're invited to the banquet. And that's just another way of saying that those who are admitted into the spiritual side of the kingdom of God are none but those who are dressed in the righteousness secured by Jesus Christ and his redemption at the cross. And if you try to crash the party and enter dressed in the merit of your own good deeds, it will not be good enough. You will be cast out as an imposter, thus proving that many are invited, but few are chosen. Verse 14 of our text. Now though it is true that God will have his banquet hall filled with guests, it is not true that every person is admitted simply because he has received an invitation. Let me say that again. The banquet hall is going to be filled, but it's not true that every person is admitted simply because he has received an invitation. Every time I stand to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm inviting sinners to respond to the gospel and to come to Christ. All within earshot of my voice, they're invited. And through the gospel messenger sent forth from God himself, the entire world, God's kingdom, is invited to come. But if you come, when you come, you must not fail to come dressed in the garment of God's righteousness, which he supplies through his son-saving work. You know, in some of the more uh, exclusive restaurants in the large cities, there's a dress code for admittance. Men must wear a coat and a tie, maybe even a suit or a tuxedo, depending on the image of the restaurant. Now suppose a man was invited to a party being held at one of these exclusive eateries, and he showed up with his written invitation, dressed in casual slacks, and a sports shirt.
So the maitre d' says to him, I, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but you must have a coat and tie. The guy's all apologetic. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 I didn't know. So the maitre d' says, oh, that's okay. I have a coat and I have a tie that you can wear. Upon seeing the coat and tie, the guy explodes. A white coat? A white tie? What's the matter with you guys? Don't you have any love for color? I'm not going in there looking like Frosty the Snowman. And with that, he dashes past the maitre d' and he tries to join the other guests anyway. How far do you think he's going to get? Not far at all. The bouncers will be removing him bodily and none too gently from the premises. It was one error to come to the restaurant dressed inappropriately and it was downright rude and insulting to the owner of the restaurant to spurn their kind offer to fit him with the appropriate clothing free of charge. But you will say, oh, no, no wait a minute. He, he had a bona fide invitation got it right here here's my wedding invitation yeah he had a bona fide invitation but a bona fide invitation can only be cashed in by those who abide by the dress code. God graciously invites all of you here today to join him and his son at the banquet table, a spiritual refreshment which he has set for you. God has done all the work. His invitation is bona fide that it is a good faith offer. But if you take him up on the invitation, you must still come to the banquet dressed appropriately. And there's only one appropriate wedding garment. It's the color white, which stands for the righteousness of God's people, which they have acquired through the shed blood of Jesus. Red is the only color permitted at this banquet and it's worn by the groom himself. The groom alone. It is the color of his blood which flowed from Calvary's mountain for all the elect of God.
That is, people not only invited, but actually chosen to sit with Christ. Those who sit with Christ at his table have confessed their sins to God. They've renounced their own goodness. And they have pleaded for and received God's forgiveness. At the point of their entrance into God's family, they stopped making excuses for their delays. They've cast themselves on the good promises of God. I have prepared my dinner. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. And so they came. They came. If you refuse the invitation, you have counted yourself unworthy of the grace and mercy of God. Verse 8. And the army of God's angels will gather you like weeds out of a garden at the great harvest. And you and your city will be burned with fire. Verse 7. And if you try to crash the party inappropriately dressed in your own self-righteousness, and supposed goodness, the attendants of God will bind you hand and foot and throw you into the darkness where our text says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now why, why would anyone choose that after over the luscious feast of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness? This is the gospel Jesus preached. And it's mind-boggling. And it's far from the pablum peddled by the false, ear-tickling deceivers of our day. Jesus put it this way to his disciples, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. So just to listen to anybody because they're on TV or radio is not wise. If they're not preaching the truth. And there are men on radio and TV that are preaching the truth. But you have to have discernment as to what you're going to allow to feed your mind. You have to be thinking the thoughts of God and enabled by the Holy Spirit to interpret the truth. Would you ever think that Jesus would tell a parable like we find in Matthew 22 that ends with throw them out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that gnashing of teeth, brethren, you know it to be. It's that spite. It's that hatred people have for God. 
and they're going to go to their grave cursing him and using his name in vain as they have done for the bulk of their life. May God be merciful to us. Heavenly Father, send your spirit upon us. Teach us to love your truth, to love your word, to not be caught up in all of the rhetoric of our day. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Not even if they say, "Oh yeah, but Lord, we we uh, you know you know us. We we preached the gospel in your name, and, and not only so, but in your name we we did many miracles." What a shock for them to have heard! Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Lord, that was the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but the Pharisees are alive and well in our day. And we plead with you to give us the discernment to know the difference between those who preach the truth, teach the truth, print books about the truth, and those that don't. And there are counterfeits in every one of those fields of the media that I just referenced. The book writers, the speakers, yes, whatever. Give us discernment. Help us to love the truth, and your truth is found in the word. You are the living truth. What can we say about Christ? We had best be declaring the Christ of the Bible. And Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is again from the hymnal. And it's 529 in the hymnal. Let's stand.
Our Lord, help us to love him like we should. <clears throat> it's easy to say, I love Jesus, but our lives better show it because you're not fooled by those who know how to use religious words. We must love you first. We love, must love you foremost. We must love you about, above spouse. We must love you about, above family. We must love you first and foremost above all because you are our God and our Savior. And you did for us what no one else could do. And we praise you for that. Now sometimes our hearts get cold and we say, oh, what's the use? We get discouraged and we go into pity city and we forget the great and glorious things you have done for us and the banquet feast that's awaiting us. We're going to enter into the festivities of the Lamb of God in glory. A banquet that never ends. Pray that we'll get our eyes fixed on the right place. And help us to speak boldly for the truth of the gospel. Because we have friends and loved ones that do not yet know you in their in saving grace. And that scares us. And it concerns us. Why? Because they're our friends and our relatives and we love them in a very special way. So while we love the world in general, we love our families in a special way. And we cannot even conceive that we would go to glory without them. 
So, Lord Jesus, please help us to be faithful in our testimony to them, not just in words, but in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed.